Good evening and welcome to our uh, Bible study on St. Luke. Tonight um, is going to be uh, fairly, uh, fairly loaded, so I do recommend that you take notes. We'll see how far along we'll be able to get through uh, the infancy narrative. We are contemplating today the Annunciation to Our Lady. So we're going to start in Luke uh, chapter 1. Verse 26. 1 Luke 1:26. 1, now, before we begin, I need to remind some of you and then um, that those who, of you who were not with us about the ways of interpreting scripture. This is very important if we are to understand the text and also all the echoes, all the intertextual echoes into the Old Testament. There are, in our tradition, four ways in which we read scripture four senses of scripture as a reference please look up the catechism of the catholic church paragraph 101 to 127 those four ways are called the literal sense the anagogical sense the eschatological sense and the moral sense. I'm going to try and bring this down to something concrete before we proceed. This is very important. You will see as we walk through this text. The literal sense is not the literalist sense. It is the sense that was intended by the human author in the context in which he was writing for the audience that he had in mind. This is the first sense that we need to grasp and understand and as I told you most of this Bible study is really focused on the literal sense because today we have lost it. The second sense is the anagogical sense. It is the sense that has to do with Christ. It is the sense through which we see Christ in Scripture. The third sense, the eschatological, is the one that deals with the end times, but also deals with the church. And the fourth sense, moral or topological, it is the sense that you are most familiar with, with perhaps the sense of Scripture when Scripture speaks to me today in my particular circumstance. Let me give you the example that has been used in classical Catholic teaching. The Temple of Jerusalem. When you look at the Temple of Jerusalem, the literal sense means the Temple of Jerusalem, the building. And you may speak of the first, 
second or third temple. You may, you may think that there were only two, the temple by, built by Solomon and the temple built by Herod, but, but in fact there were three, because there was one temple built by Ezra and Nehemiah. That's the temple. It is the temple because the Holy Spirit, the Shekinah, dwelt in it. In the, in the minds of the ancients, not only the, 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 the Hebrews or the Israelites, but all ancients, the whole universe is a macro temple. The purpose of the universe is to tell us something about God or the gods. As you know in the Hellenistic mythology, where do the gods live? Right? They're up there in the clouds. And everything in nature points to them. So the nature and the cosmos are a place where we offer sacrifice to the gods. It's a macro temple. What is the temple? It's a micro universe. It's a miniature of the world. You understand? But it is not a miniature in our modern sense. It is rather a dollhouse where you teach your daughters to manage a house so that they are ready to manage a real house when they grow up. Why am I saying that? Because the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD ended the, the, the Jerusalem temple itself but points to what? The destruction of the whole world. Because what happens to the miniature will end up happening to the real thing. <clears throat> the temple in that sense was a sacrament that pointed to the whole universe. That's the first sense, the literal sense. And you see there is more to it than just a temple. There's all that baggage that the ancient understood very well and then we have lost. The second sense, the sense pertaining to Christ, is one where we say the temple is actually Jesus Christ. <clears throat> How, where do we get that from? Well, from the Lord himself. When he told them, destroy this temple and on the third day I will raise it. And John points out that he was speaking of his body, but they did not understand that. They took him literally, but he was speaking anagogically. That was the second sense. And there's no contradiction between the two. The third one is the temple as the church. And the fourth is the temple as us. We are what, St. Paul says, temples of the Holy Spirit. So, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. What happened to Jesus on the cross? His body was destroyed. What will happen to the church militant at the end of times? All of that will go away. What happens to us when we die? Our body is destroyed. What happened to the temple after Christ rose? It was renewed. It became the church. What happened to Christ when he died? He rose. His body was transfigured. What will happen to the church at the end of time? It will be renewed in heaven. And what happens to us when we are, when we die in Christ? We are transfigured. Four senses of the same word. No contradiction. 
And the key thing is that we, as Catholics, do not have to choose between one or another. All four apply. Do you understand that? Okay. This is going to be very important for this particular passage in Luke, but across the entire Lucan Gospel, as well as Acts. Because Luke is one with sheeped and Pauline theology. He is writing to an audience who has been taught, catechized by Paul. And he has all that background in mind when he's writing. So, as it is the case with most of the, the Bible, especially the New Testament, oftentimes what is most important is not what is said, but what is left unsaid or not said. What he does not mention explicitly tends to be extremely important. What happened to us as Catholics is that we have lost the context. We have to rediscover that so that scripture can come alive. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Galilee. That word evokes so much in the minds of the Jews. Let's recall what we said last time. Hebrews, Jews, and Israelites are not the same thing. Hebrews are descendants of Eber, the great, 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 great grandfather of Abraham. As such, Muslims are Hebrews because they descend from Ishmael, who is the son of Abraham. Israelites are the sons of Jacob. And Jews are the sons of Judah. Galilee <clears throat> is up north in an area that belonged to the kingdom of Israel after the kingdom of David was split into two. The kingdom of David, the kingdom of J the house of Jacob that David personified represented all twelve tribes distributed in the promised land as Joshua, Jesus, allotted the land to all twelve tribes. After the death of Solomon, that kingdom was split into two. And we had the kingdom of Judah, down south, and the kingdom of Israel, up north. In 722 BC, the Syrians came down and took all ten tribes of the kingdom of Israel into exile, and they were never allowed to come back. Later, in the 6th century BC, the Babylonians come down, destroy Jerusalem in the first temple, take the Jews into exile, but they were allowed to come back. Under Ezra and Nehemiah, they built the second temple, and that started the, the, the rule of the, priest, the priesthood. Galilee is up north between and it's and between Galilee and Judea down south we have Samaria 
Samaritans, the word Samaritan is the word that the Jews used to call the Samaritans. The Samaritans never called themselves Samaritans. They called themselves Israelites. Samaritans was a derogative term that was used by them. Why is it important that it's Nazareth up in Galilee? What's the importance of Nazareth? Very briefly, Nazareth, the word, comes from the root Netzer, which means branch. And the prophets have spoken of the stump of Jesse. They said that the tree of Jesse, Jesse being the father of David, will be pruned down, cut down, but a branch will come forth. And the branch became a synonym for Messiah. So right there, as Luke is writing and he speaks of Galilee and he, speak, he speaks of Nazareth, he's bringing back all that context in the minds of his readers. What we need to realize is that if today I say to you, if you were to ask me how was your day, and I said, oh boy, 9-11. By saying just these two numbers, I brought back a full context that you can take three hours to describe to, let's say, a Martian anthropologist, who hearing me would go back home and write and say, humans have the strange way of expressing problems. They use numbers. Particularly, the two numbers, 9-11, seem to have a, a special importance. That's all he will get. He gets the numbers 9-11. We get so much more, yet I did not say more than these two numbers. The same occurs when Luke speaks of Galilee and Nazareth. Same effect to his readers. Unfortunately, not to us. Because we've lost all that context. To a virgin betrothed, to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The house of David. As soon as Luke uses these two words, the house of David, he's sending red flags all over. House of David? What are you trying to say here? We are in a very painful situation. There is only Judah left and Benjamin, the two tribes down south. The prophets have not stopped talking about the coming of the Messiah who will restore the house of David. Who will bring back all twelve tribes under one king, the son of David. Yet, when we look out there, we see the Romans, we see Herod, who is an Edomite, an Arab, ruling over us. And we cannot tell who is of those ten tribes from the pagans. How could you speak of restoration of the house of David? under those circumstances. It seems impossible, physically impossible to restore the house of David. That's the crux of the matter in 
a literal, historical, political context. And it is very important for us to keep track of that. You will see, it permeates the entire gospel. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Notice, Luke tell us the name of the virgin right before the angel's salutation. And he does that on purpose. Why? Because the angelic salutation is very special. It is actually unique in the Bible. This is the one and only time where an angel is going to salute a creature by title, not by her name. Now, in your Bible, you may have various ways in which those two first two words are translated. Could you care to read them to me? Tell me what do you read. Is that what is written in your Bible? Okay. Hail, favored one. Favored one. Rejoice, so highly favored. Favored one. Okay. Let's spend a couple of minutes on that title. The Greek is Kair Kikaritumene. Kair is rejoice. Kikaritumene is a word that can mean in the minimal way, favored one, in the maximal way, most exalted one. It can mean both. So, from a Greek perspective, the translation rejoice, O favored one, is correct. Grammatically speaking, this is a correct translation. It's a minimal translation. And the question for us is, what's wrong with it? I mean, we know almost instinctively something is wrong with that translation. But you cannot explain what's wrong with that translation solely based on these two words. Yes, it is entirely possible to translate it this way. I want to make that very clear. What's wrong with this translation is that it seems to miss the fact that the angel uses a title to address a creature. And that is a fact that must be noted. To simply say rejoice, O favored one, seems to water down the issue. Why? Because there are many in the Bible who are favored of God. Moses certainly is favored of God. David is favored of God. Abraham was favored of God. Job was favored of God. So why then why then calling Mary favored one seems to miss the point. 
And here is where we need to shift gear and go in and use the anagogical reading. The reading to, as it pertains to Christ. And as I told you, you do not have to choose between readings. All of them apply to Scripture. Before I even walk through this, I have to show you all the areas in the Old Testament that prefigures that prefigure Mary. I don't have time to go through all of them in detail. I'm going to cite them, and I'm going to stop a couple of them. And this might take the rest of our hour. I warned you that um, it's going to be really tough to go through this in one hour. First, we need to start with Genesis 3.15. The enmity between the woman and the serpent. In that text, right after Adam and Eve committed a sin, God says that he will put enmity between the serpent and the woman. And a actually fairly simple study of the text will show you right away that that woman could not be Eve. What, what is, what is at, you know, what's at play here when God says I'm going to put an enmity between you and the woman? It means that you and the woman are going to be enemies. Alright. Now let's stop and think a little bit, but what does it mean to be an enemy of Satan? But what does it mean to be an enemy of Satan? It means that you're going to be against Satan. But God adds something else. Between your seed and her seed, singular, and you, speaking to Satan, says that let me just read the text so I don't uh... he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel actually the he the, the participle use can go either way it could be he, it could be she alright it doesn't have to be he but be it as it may the seed of the woman is going to bruise the head of Satan. Which means that victory is assured to the seed of the woman. Now, what hinders us here is our individualistic outlook on life. We have lost the meaning of the family. In a family, what happens to my son happens to me. What happens to me happens to my son. Honor is shared. Victory is shared between all family members. I only need to point to you what happened when the sons of Jacob, Reuben and Simeon, took vengeance on a tribe who accepted to be circumcised. They went in by night and killed all the men. Jacob said, why have you brought shame upon me? He didn't say, you useless kids, that's your problem, go figure it out. You're over 18. It's me, my name. This is foreign to us today, but we have to 
understand it. The point being that the victory of the son is the victory of the mother. Alternatively, or reciprocally, the victory of the mother is the victory of the son. You don't make distinction. So hence, if, her vict if she's going to be victorious over the, over the serpent, and if that enmity was placed by God, and if God does everything perfectly, then an enmity that he placed between her and him is perfect. It follows that she being the perfect enemy of Satan could not have been under his influence, could not be a slave of Satan in any way, shape or form. Which means that she could not have been under original sin. And from then we have the Immaculate Conception that Mary was conceived without original sin. Now, does this mean that Mary did not need salvation? That Jesus was not her savior? That was the issue that stopped St. Thomas Aquinas from accepting the Immaculate Conception. He had no problem with it, but he could not accept, nor the church could accept, that Mary's Immaculate Conception could dispense her from being saved by, by Christ. So how do you reconcile both? Well, you do it keeping in mind two things. Number one, in a Hebraic mind, you are not saved from something. You are saved for something. You are not free from something. You are free for something. In our mind, I am free to do what I want. I am free from government regulations, taxes, etc., etc. In Hebraic mind, I am free to be able to do something, to be able to obey, to be able to love. Hence, salvation is not simply being free from sin. It is being able to reach heaven. Salvation is for heaven, not just from sin. With that in mind, we see that there are actually two ways that one can be saved. One can be saved after committing a sin. One can be saved before. And the way we represent this, we say, suppose there was a man running in the forest, and there's this big hole, and he falls into this hole. And this other man comes and pulls him out of the hole. Now suppose there's another man running in the forest. And right before he falls into the hole, that man stops him. Weren't both men saved? They were. Both men needed this savior. One, after he fell in the hole, the other before. Both could not have escaped the hole without the savior. Now let me ask you a question. Who do you think would be more grateful? The one who had fallen into the hole and was pulled out? Or the one who did not? So who do you think 
would have a greater appreciation for that salvific act? The one who fell into the hole or the one who did not? Did not. If I can spare you from a pain, won't you be doubly um, would you be doubly appreciative? Let me put it this way. Suppose you go through a fire and you have a third degree burn and you experience all that pain and somebody comes and saves you versus suppose you are about to enter that fire and he saves you. Think about it. But this analogy is somewhat broken. Why? Because our ability to appreciate, to be thankful, is dimmed by the effect of original sin. Our ability to love, our ability to recognize what is good, is dimmed by the effect of original sin. The first effect of original sin is weakening of the will, disorder of the senses. The imagination, reason, passions seem to be sometimes at odds and in control of the will. The will is not in control. Hence, one who has fallen under original sin has less of a capacity to express love than one who did not. We call these the preternatural faculties that Adam and Eve had to see things much more clearly than we do today to understand uh, you know they were able to understand much more quickly than we can today and they had some physical attributes that we don't have their bodies did not experience decay or fatigue or sickness or disease or death Mary, by virtue of her immaculate conception, has a much greater and much deeper appreciation of God, her Savior, as she calls him in the um, Magnificat. So yes, Jesus Christ is her Savior, more so perhaps in her case than in ours, and she has a greater appreciation for what he done for her than we do. I'm sorry? Yes, St. Thomas Aquinas had no problem with thinking of Mary being immaculately conceived, but he could not accept the arguments presented to him that tried to do away with her need of being saved. Right? Because that takes away from the salvific act of Jesus Christ that extends to all. All are saved by, in and through Jesus Christ. Right? It was the argument that he could not accept, not the idea. All right. We have a number of types in the Old Testament of women that represent Mary. Genesis 18, 9 to 18. Sarah 
is barren. She has no children. And there is a theophany, there is a presence of God that represents really the Trinity. When the three angels of the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oak of Mambre, right before they went into Sodom and Gomorrah and destroyed the two cities. And a prophecy is made that Sarah will bear a son. And I would recommend you read it and contrast the salutation over there and the way they speak of Sarah with the way Gabriel speaks to Mary. Twenty-four, Genesis 24, 58 to 60. The blessing of Rebecca. Rebecca is another type of Mary. And Rebecca was barren. Rebecca was the wife of Isaac and she was barren. And there again, prayer brings about uh, fulfillment of a blessing and she has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Now, in Genesis 27.6, as you probably all know, Jacob took the blessing that Esau had reserved, uh, that uh, Isaac has reserved for Esau. And that blessing is covenantal. It's a covenantal blessing. It is a kingly blessing. It is a blessing that is passing on the authority of the firstborn, king, priest, and prophet, to Jacob. Isaac, Isaac meant it for Esau, but Rebekah knew better. Remember the story. She tells her son Jacob to bring, his, to, bring his, to bring her his offering, and she would prepare it. And Jacob does as she tells him. She takes, and then she, she tells him that she will take on his curse. Because she says, what if my father comes to me who I am and says, blessing me, curse me. She says, I will take on your curse, my son. And Rebekah clothes Jacob. And Isaac blesses Jacob. Alright, you can read it in Genesis 27, 6 and following. That's the literal meaning. You can now apply this to Mary. Mary is interceding on our behalf. She asks us to bring our offering, which often is not enough. She will take our offering and she will prepare it in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. She will then clothe us with a, with a vestment of grace so that we may be able to stand before the Lord so that the Lord will bless us. That is an, an anagogical reading of the text in which we see how that role of intercession that Rebecca played on behalf of Jacob was a prefiguration of the role of, of the intercessory role that Mary plays in our lives.
And as I told you, you do not have to choose between one or the other. Both apply. In Genesis 28, 10 to 18, Jacob has a dream and he sees a staircase to heaven with angels coming up and down. One understanding, one reading applies to Christ, the staircase to heaven. The latter is the cross. Genesis 28, 10 to 18. That ladder is the cross through which we reach heaven. Another reading is that the ladder is Mary through whom we reach heaven. Again, avoid the temptation of having to choose between, well, Mary and Jesus. Remember, it's family. I take nothing away from Christ when I magnify his mother. Nothing. Because as I'm doing this, I'm showing you how much more Jesus is than his mother. So if I show you the beauty of Mary, how glorious she is, you can just start to imagine how much more Christ is glorious and beautiful. You understand? Looking at her, meditating on her rosary, make us understand how much more Christ is beautiful and glorious and lovely and loving and caring, not less. Why? Because Jesus Christ is generous. And he wants to conform us to his image. He wants to give us what he has. He is not afraid of giving us what he has. Genesis 28:31 Rachel the house the the the, the wife of um, Jacob is barren all this barrenness this natural barrenness that we saw also with Elizabeth is a representation of the inability of the old testament to bring about life I, 29, try 29, I scribbled something here, try 29, 31, um, it brings about, it's, it's unable to bring about life, and God has to supplement where nature has fallen, through prayers to a supernatural intervention, in order to bring about life, it is a mini catechism about what is going to happen in the New Testament, Okay. In all the case of these women, these saintly women, these holy women, these are not, you know, run-of-the-mill women. These are very holy women. Okay. We have bareness that God heals. In the case of Mary, there is no such thing as a bareness. There is virginity. 
Now, virginity today has become an issue because it is solely linked to sexuality. Somehow, people may be led to think that the, the reason why we speak of a virginity is because we think that virginity is pure and clean and sex is dirty. That's so... Nothing can be further from Catholic teaching about human sexuality. Nothing. In fact, uh, there was a cardinal in Rome who said that it wasn't the church that had a problem with sex. It's the world that has a problem with sex. Because the world can't stop talking about it. Right? John Paul II, in his writings, Theology of the Body, states unequivocally that sex is holy. And sex is very good. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. The virginity of Mary has nothing to do, to a certain extent, with a judgment on sexuality. Nothing whatsoever. It is rather an expression of exclusivity that Mary is holy unto the Lord. That she is completely consecrated to Him. And that her womb is an enclosed garden in which the Lord takes His delight. That brings us back to the Psalms. That's the intent behind it. Her virginity and her fruitfulness are a sign of her unity with the Holy Spirit. Her true spouse. Now, book of Judges, chapter 4, 4 to 10. Deborah. Deborah is a prophetess and a judge of Israel. And Barak is a commander of the army who has to go to war. And he tells her, I will not go to war without you. Which is what we say to Mary in our spiritual warfare. I shall not do war. I shall not go to war without you. Book of Judges, chapter 13, 3 to 5. The Annunciation to Korea. To Korea's wife, Samson's mother. Again, read that Annunciation and you will see that the angel of the Lord does not speak to her the way he speaks to Mary. He does not greet her with a title. He simply announces to her what is about to happen. That she will bring forth a son and he will be a Nazir unto the Lord. Holy consecrated to the Lord. As I pointed out to you last time, the reason why Samson had his powers and his hair is because he was holy consecrated as a priest to God. Just as John the Baptist will also be consecrated. And then when his hair was cut, it isn't that he lost some magical power, but that covenant was broken. <coughs> Ruth. Read the book of Ruth if you've not read it. She's a Moabite. She's not of the chosen people. But she tells her mother-in-law, Wherever you go, I will go. 
your people will become my people. Again, anagogically, Ruth is Mary. Why? <coughs> because she is a foreigner amongst the children of Adam who have contracted original sin. She has not. And yet, <coughs> she lives among us and she suffers so that we may attain salvation. Just as Ruth goes with her mother-in-law and works all day long in the field collecting wheat, collecting barley basically, so that she can feed her mother-in-law. Okay? <clears throat> and Ruth ends up being in the lineage of David by, 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 um, by marriage. First book of Samuel. Anna, wife of, of uh, Anna who's barren. And we should stop and look at her prayer, or her canticle, which is in the first book of Samuel, chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. First book of Samuel, chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides thee. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Why seven? The covenant. Always the covenant. Seven is a sign of the covenant. Why? Because in Hebrew, to covenant, to make a covenant, is to seven oneself. That's why seven is so important. That's why God created the world in seven days. The covenant. Incidentally, French has a very happy word for covenant. Because the word covenant in French is alliance. And alliance is the wedding ring. Which brings in a very strong way the meaning of marriage. A covenant. Okay? So this, my ring, is an alliance, is a covenant in French. So you can see from this canticle that hers is very close to the Magnificat. That Mary is borrowing from Old Testament imagery and she's going back to Hannah for a very good reason. Hannah will bring forth Samuel. Samuel is not a Levite. He is not a priest. But Hannah will consecrate her son to the priest Eli. And by that consecration, by that adoption, he enters the priesthood. 
Eli had two very corrupt sons. And God told him that he would take the priesthood away from him. And during a battle, the, the Ark of the Covenant was stolen. The two sons, his two sons were killed. When news is brought to Eli, he falls back and dies. And so Israel is left without a priest. But it was, if it wasn't for Hannah who prayed, who brought forth a son who was able to be the first judge for his people Israel, for, to be the last judge, I'm sorry, of his people and guide them, the people of Israel would have been in disarray. And it is Samuel who prepares the kingdom. It is Samuel who anoints the king. And both are sent to the temple. Both are brought to the temple. And this is reminiscent of the finding in the temple. Right? Jesus was consecrated to God as we saw last to, to was consecrated to God, as we saw last time, with that sentence, holy unto the Lord. And when a child is consecrated to the Lord, when he reaches the age of 12, he enters into a form of seminary to become a priest. And from 12 to about the age of 30, he's basically preparing to be a priest. And he starts to be a full priest at the age of 33. That's why when Jesus is 12 years old, he stays behind in a temple. He is consecrated unto God. So again, we see that typology between all these women, all these figures of the Old Testament who point to Mary. And so we see Mary across the entire spectrum of the Old Testament. Not literally, but anagogically and eschatologically. Both senses that are just as valid as the literal sense. Don't let our scientific outlook on the world muddle the way you read scripture. Because if you do, you will not be able to fully understand what the word of God is trying to say to you. One Samuel twenty five, twenty four to thirty one, and forty one to forty two. Abigail. Abigail is married to an idiot who was a very rich man, and uh, David and his men were protecting him and did not try to steal away from his herds or, or feed on his wealth. David sends his men to ask for some food and he derides them. He laughs at them. And they go back and tell David and they, David says, each man to his sword. And he takes 400 men with him and word come to Ab Abigail who immediately get up, take 200 loaves of bread, a full meal and go and she bows before David and makes intercession on behalf of her husband. And that is pleasing to David and he accepts it. And afterwards her husband dies and David takes her as his spouse and she says, I am the servant of the Lord. 
She is again an image, a prefiguration of Mary, who oftentimes will intercede on our behalf even when we are not asking her to do so. The book of Judith, especially chapter 9, the prayer of Judith, and 13, verse 4 to 6, her prayer of victory. Read the book of Judith. And again, see it not only in the literal sense, but in the eschatological sense, in the sense that applies to Our Lady. Her victory over the enemy which is reminiscent of the promise made in Genesis. Her city is surrounded and Judith is able to win over the general of the army, of the enemy. Esther, likewise, read the entire book of Esther with this prism. Especially her prayer, chapter 4, verse 17L to 17Z. There's an insertion there that comes from the Septuagint. And 2 Maccabees, chapter 7, verse 20 to 24, where we see this woman who is standing before the Roman Emperor, and she is encouraging her seven sons to undergo torture rather than renounce their faith. And she sees her seven son dying before her eyes. And she's the last to die. Very touching and very powerful, the seven martyrs. Again, a picture of Mary, who whose maternal solicitude is not about our physical comfort. It is about our souls and our salvation. Also, Mary before the cross, seeing Jesus dying for three hours and willingly offering him as a sacrifice to the Father. The, we often make short shrift of the right that Mary had over Jesus. As her only son, Jesus had an obligation to take care of his mother. And to leave her a widower was to dishonor her. We need to keep that in mind when we read the crucifixion in John. Because we can start to understand her participation in the suffering of Christ. The book of Job, chapter 42. I'm going to read to you the end. That's the, the last chapter in, in Job. And Job is right before the Psalms. 
in case you're trying to find where the, that book is. Verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven... You notice the number again? Seven bulls and seven rams and what? Offer them as a sacrifice? No. And go to my servant Job and offer up and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering and my servant Job shall pray for you. What is God saying? Your prayer is not acceptable before me. You understand? Your prayer is not acceptable before me. Job's prayer is acceptable. Because my wrath is kindled against you. You go to Job. With Job you offer the sacrifice. Job prays for you. He will intercede on your behalf. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Nahamite went and did what the Lord had told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. There is a fundamental misconception today that I can go pray to God whichever way and God will just say my prayer. Not so. We forget a precondition. There is a precondition for all of this. We either have to be repentant, contrite, on our way to conversion, or in a state of grace for our prayer to be acceptable before God. So oftentimes, we pray and pray and pray and pray and nothing happens because we're not in a state that makes our prayer acceptable before the Lord. That is why the smart among you, instead of wasting your time, in hours and hours and hours and hours of your own prayer, hoping the Lord will hear you, go to somebody who you know for sure. Because of what I just said. Who is speaking right now? Who is God speaking to them? No, no, just a second. Who, who is God? Who is God speaking right now? Jesus. The second person in the Trinity. He's telling, to, he's telling them, if you come to me, I'm not going to accept your prayer. Right, but he said it in the New Testament. Uh, don't, again, 
don't contrast new and old as if what is in the old doesn't apply in the new. He said, I have come to do what? To fulfill the law. He didn't say, I came to abrogate, deny, but to fulfill all the law. Now, Rose, let me answer your question, which is a good question. Jesus said, but I am the one who intercedes before my Father on your behalf. Absolutely. We have only one intercessor before God the Father, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There are no others. No others. Have I made that very clear? But, Jesus didn't say, you can come to me willy-nilly. In fact, if anything in the New Testament, he is most of the time saying the opposite. The parable of the ten virgins is a very good example. Ten virgins waiting for the bride, who is the Lord. Five were foolish, says the Lord, and five were not. Five were wise. He accepts the prayer of five of them and rejects the prayer of the other five. Right? My point, precisely. However, that does not mean that we can't rely on someone else's intercession who we know is ready. Do you see the point? If I am not ready, I want something from God, and I know I'm not ready. But I know that someone else is, and God does not refuse his prayers. Wouldn't it be smart on my part to go and ask this person to pray to God for me? Again, in context, as I said, he said that we, sh we should not take those sayings of our Lord out of context and make them an absolute statement that applies at all times against Scripture. We have to harmonize all of Scripture together. There's always a danger for us to take one sentence, one statement, and make it be the end all and be all of all Scripture. It doesn't work this way. When he said that, come to me all you who are heavy laden, and I will relieve you. He also said, take your cross and follow me. What if I'm not ready? What I'm trying to point out to you is God's mercy is so great that even when I'm not ready, even when I cannot pray, if I know to go to someone else who can, he will listen. I'm not taking away from his mercy. I'm adding to it. I'm showing you how merciful he is. Because under this other scenario, unless I am ready, my prayer is not acceptable. Unless I am converting, my prayer is not acceptable. I, haven't, I am alone. There's God and me, and that's it. You understand? But here, what we're saying is, if I know someone who knows how to pray, who knows how to intercede, who knows what to ask for, who has God's ear, so to speak, wouldn't I go to that person? Because, in the final analysis, the question is this. Who among us here know what to pray for? How do we know that our prayer 
is acceptable? Who can say with certainty that when I play for that Cadillac, I'm going to get it? Or I won't? None of us can. But the mother who is in heaven knows precisely what to pray for. And her prayer will not be rejected. So Job is a prefiguration of Mary. Because his prayer was acceptable to the Lord. Whereas their prayers were not. And so I am not saying to take this and again make it an absolute that you know only Mary's prayer is acceptable to the Lord. That's not what I'm saying. Nor am I saying that when I pray directly to Jesus, He's not going to hear me. That's not what I'm saying either. I want to make that very, very clear. What I'm saying is that there's one thing I know with certainty. And that is, He will not refuse His mother anything she asks Him for. That I know. And if I'm a smart, I act on that knowledge. And God will appreciate that I trust enough in Him to know that He gave me His mother. That's what I'm saying. Second Maccabee. I told you about this one, 72024. And two more references. Sirach six eighteen thirty one and wisdom chapter nine. Sirach six eighteen thirty one and wisdom chapter nine. In fact, let's read Sirach, and then we can uh, we can stop. <laughs> yes, I gave you Second Maccabee seven. All right, Second Maccabee seven twenty to twenty four is the the story of the seven martyrs and their mother, who is encouraging them, and watch them be tortured. And die, and she dies after them. That was the reading, either today or yesterday, in the Latin. Was it? Okay. Yeah, it's a very powerful reading. It's worth reading it. Seven. It's Second Maccabee, the second book of the Maccabees, chapter seven, verse twenty to twenty-four. And again, you see Mary at the foot of the cross. And you see her encouraging us to fight the heroic fight in order to win heaven. Sirach 6.18.31 It's, uh, here we go. So it's, you have Proverbs, Wisdom of Solomon, and in Sirach. Verse, chapter 6, 18 through 31. Um, my son, from your youth, from your youth up, choose instruction, and until you are old, you will keep finding wisdom. 
Now the beautiful thing about it is that wisdom, both in the Aramaic, I believe, but at least in the Arabic and French, is feminine. La sagesse. It's feminine. In English, we don't, we, we lose that. Come to her, but thankfully, they bring it up in the translation. Come to her, meaning wisdom. Like one who plows and sows, and wait for her good harvest. For in her service you will t toil a little while, and soon you will eat of her produce. She seems very harsh to the uninstructed. A weakling will not remain with her. She will weigh him down like a heavy testing stone, and he will not be slow to cast her off. For wisdom is like her name, and is not manifest to many. And that is something that I find to be absolutely true every time I speak about Mary. I have come to accept, even though I cannot explain it, that God chooses to reveal his mother to whomever he pleases. And it is not true that he reveals her to all. And certainly not to the same depth. Why? I don't know. But it's, a, it's, it's been now... I've been doing it now for 10 years. It's an experiential thing that I've seen happen over and over and over and over. Why? I have no explanation. Listen, my son, and accept my judgment. Do not reject my counsel. Put your feet into her fetters and your neck into her collar. In other words, become what? Who put, who has fetters in his feet? A slave. Become a slave of wisdom. Okay? And to those of you who are, who really have no issues, no problems with Our Lady, I, I advise you or I would encourage you to read uh, True Devotion to Mary by St. Louis de Montfort and if you have not done so to read his, his consecration his consecration is rooted right here in those two books Sirach and, and the Book of Wisdom and your neck into her collar put your shoulder under her and carry her and do not fret under her bonds come to her with all your soul and keep her ways with all your might search out and seek and she will become known to you and when you get hold of her do not let her go for at last you will find the rest she gives and she will be changed into joy for you then her fetters will become for you a strong protection and her color a glorious robe. Her yoke is a golden ornament and her bonds are a cord of blue. You will wear her like a glorious robe and put her, put her on like a crown of gladness. Crown of gladness. And that is so absolutely true. The only way that I know of to truly enter into the Marian mystery is to give up surrender if you're going to sit and wait until you're absolutely convinced of everything 
the door will remain shut. Eventually, you're going to pick up that rosary, you're going to start saying it, you're going to say to Mary, I accept, now you guide me. And in faith, she will reach you, she will get you to go to see Jesus in a way you've not seen before. That is something, that's an element of faith that cannot be explained. It can be lived. And you don't have to trust my word for it. Trust 2,000 years of tradition. And last, the book of Solomon. I really encourage you to read that chapter over and over. It is so beautiful. The book of Solomon, if I can find it. Wisdom of Solomon. Let's go to chapter 9. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I mean chapter 8. You can actually start a little earlier. Yeah, let's start a little bit earlier. Just a second, I will tell you in a minute. I want to... Okay. Let's start verse 21, chapter 7. Well, no, verse 7, yeah. Chapter 7, verse 7. And it's just so beautiful. Let's end with this. Therefore I prayed, and understanding was given me. I called upon God, and the spirit of wisdom came to me. I preferred her to scepters and thrones, and I accounted wealth as nothing in comparison with her. Neither did I liken to her any priceless gem, because all gold is but a little sand in her sight, and silver will be accounted as clay before her. I loved her more than health and beauty, and I chose to have her rather than light, because her radiance never ceases. All good things come to me along with her, and in her hands uncounted wealth. I rejoiced in them all, because wisdom leads them. But I did not know that she was their mother. I learned without guile, and I impart without grudging. I do not hide her wealth, for it is an unfailing treasure for men. Those who get it obtain friendship with God, commended for the gifts that come from instruction. May God grant that I speak with judgment and have thoughts worthy of what I have received. For he is the guide even of wisdom and the corrector of the wise. Dropping down to verse 22. For wisdom, the fashioner of all things, taught me. In her, there is a spirit that is intelligent, holy, unique, manifold, subtle, mobile, clear, unpolluted, distinct, invulnerable, loving the good, keen, irresistible, beneficent, human, steadfast, steadfast, sure, free from anxiety, all-powerful, overseeing all and penetrating through all spirits that are intelligent and pure and more, more subtle. For wisdom is more mobile than any motion because of her pureness, 
she pervades and penetrates all things, for she is a breath of the power of God, and a pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty. Therefore, nothing defiled gains entrance into her, for she is a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God, and an image of His goodness. Though she is but one, she can do all things, and while remaining in herself, she renews all things. In every generation she passes into holy souls and makes them friends of God and prophets. For God loves nothing so much as the man who lives with wisdom. For she is more beautiful than the sun and excels every constellation of the stars. Compared with the light she is found to be superior for it is succeeded by the night. But against wisdom evil does not prevail. She reaches mightily from one end of the earth to the other, and she orders all things well. I loved her and sought her from my youth, and I desired to take her for my bride, and I became enamored of her beauty. She glorifies her noble birth by living with God, and the Lord of all loves her. For she is an initiate in, in, in the knowledge of God and an associate in his works, if riches are a desirable possession in life, what is richer than wisdom who affects all things? And if understanding is effective, who more than she is fashioner of what exists? And if anyone loves righteousness, her labors are virtues, for she teaches self-control and prudence, justice and courage. Nothing in life is more profitable for men than these. And if anyone longs for wide experience, she knows the thing of old and infers the things to come. She understands turns of speech and the solutions of riddles. She has foreknowledge of signs and wonders and of the outcome of seasons and times. Therefore, I determined to take her to live with me, knowing that she would give me good counsel and encouragement in cares and grief. Because of her, I shall have glory among the multitudes and honor in the presence of the elders, though I am young. In a nutshell, what you have here is, you know, the essence of our Marian teaching. Now again, remember the four senses. To whom this readings apply foremost? To the Lord Jesus Christ. He is wisdom. He is wisdom his divine wisdom, his eternal wisdom, to the Holy Spirit, who is wisdom. So that is our anagogical reading when we apply it to Christ. We read it and we see Christ. But eschatologically, the other reading applies to Mary. You read it and you see who Mary is. And I can assure you that you will talk to anyone who loves Mary they will tell you experientially that this is true. That this is how she is. It also applies to the church. The bride of Christ. We don't have to choose. That's the key. It isn't opposition between Mary and Jesus. It is Mary and Jesus. Why? Because that's what Jesus wants. The Lord is not afraid that we glorify another creature when it is done in the proper perspective. Just as we glorify the saints and the angels. 
So, now, by the way, those are not exhaustive. I have not exhausted all the references. I have not touched the songs or the Song of Songs. I have not even touched the prophets. Isaiah, Ezekiel, 